Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we are attorneys with the NFP Benefits Compliance Team, and we come to you through this podcast to bring you the latest developments on issues affecting employee benefits plans. Today, we're going to stick with the COVID-19 environment and address a few updates from the DOL on the FFCRA, as well as some really interesting developments that are happening at the state level that relate to COVID-19 and personal travel. So let's start off first with the DOL and FSCRA. Chase, take it away. Yeah, so some interesting recent guidance from the DOL for employers and employees to consider. Uh, This really rolled out a few weeks ago before the 4th of July weekend, and it started with a new FAQ document called Part 43 from the DOL published on June 23rd. Uh, The guidance was focused on a few different topics, but it included interesting information on COVID testing, coverage of telehealth, and some information on wellness programs. So let's start with the COVID-19 testing, because that's obviously always a hot topic right now. What did the DOL say on that? Yeah, so one of the uh, FAQs clarified that the requirement to cover COVID-19 tests without cost sharing, remember that was part of the FFCRA, um, that only applies to testing for diagnosis or treatment of COVID-19 as determined by a healthcare provider. Uh, COVID-19 tests intended for at-home testing also have to be covered without cost-sharing when the test is determined medically appropriate and ordered by a healthcare provider. In addition, if an individual receives multiple diagnostic tests for COVID-19, plans are required to cover each test, provided the tests are medically appropriate as determined by a healthcare provider. So that helps outline which tests are covered without cost-sharing and provides this expansion to say if you have the need for multiple tests, perhaps at different times during a month or a year, those are going to be covered without cost sharing. So you have to think about what people are doing now, traveling maybe a bit more, returning to work, going out to different places. Uh, Those all increase the chance of coming in contact with or contracting COVID-19. So there may be more of a need to do the testing to be sure for individuals, particularly those that live with vulnerable or older individuals or sick individuals. So it helps to have this reassurance and, you know, under this new guidance that they can get multiple tests and it will be covered without cost sharing through these new FAQs. Yeah, that really makes sense because, you know, I mean, that, that test is really only as good as up to that day, right? You could, you could, um, you could be exposed right. to COVID-19 the very next day. And so it does it does seem that it's necessary, certainly for some individuals, to get multiple tests done. I know we're doing that for my daughter, who's been working in a retail environment. And we're, we certainly want to get her tested, um, you know, over a period of time. But you mentioned return to work. Is there a new guidance that looks at um, some of the employer requirements uh, concerning COVID-19 tests prior to returning to work? Yeah, so one of the FAQs clarifies that uh, the FFCRA does not require health plans to cover COVID-19 testing for surveillance, employment purposes, which can include those employee return to work programs or any other purpose that's not primarily intended for individualized diagnosis or treatment of COVID-19. So it's really getting back to this idea of other purposes, such as determining whether an employee can return to work, that's really beyond the scope of the FFCRA. Uh, So you don't have this mandate on the group health plan to provide endless return to work program 
type coverage without cost sharing. You think about employers now that maybe uh, want to test every employee every single day if they have the means to do that. Um, but this is just saying that you can go ahead and do that employer, but we're not going to force the group health plan to cover the costs associated with it. Um, so they're just uh, really talking about those that are required to cover the cost sharing. And for when it's on an individual basis, that really is where the cost sharing should apply. But for these wider employment type tests, it's it's not going to be a cost sharing uh, situation. Yeah, that you know that makes sense. And and we spoke last time about a new EEOC guidance that related to the antibody test, and because there have been some questions on its reliability and. So they had changed their opinion on whether an employer could require that type of a test prior to return to work. Um, so we did jump into that last time. So it seems like this is kind of an evolving topic. But you mentioned telehealth earlier, and it seems like this is such a, an important service right now. I know we have, have used it in our family, and it's, it's important because people are having to stay at home, but of course they still need healthcare guidance. And so what is it that the DOL has come out on in terms of telehealth? The new guidance basically allows employers um, to expand telehealth coverage to uh, employees who are not eligible for any other group health plan. So it does put some limitations on this by saying, look, this is really only for this expansion is really only for larger employers, uh, meaning those with at least 51 employees. And it's really only applicable for the duration of any plan year that begins sort of during this COVID-19 public health emergency. And we, we don't know, right, when the end of the emergency will be. So we don't know at what point this will really phase out. Uh, but it allows this expansion. The concern previously had been that if the employer does this and expands telehealth, that they're creating a new group health plan that would be subject to the ACA restrictions, some of the other laws, but the ACA being the most problematic. And the ACA has these prohibitions on uh, annual and lifetime limits and requires preventive services with zero cost sharing. It's difficult for a plan that's just covering telehealth to meet those requirements. So this new guidance basically just says, don't worry about the restrictions on annual and lifetime limits and preventive services. But the guidance does say that the expansion can't um, violate other ACA provisions, such as the prohibition of pre-existing condition exclusions discrimination based on a health status, but at least it gets the employer out of those um, ACA concerns. Yeah, this seems like one of those um, benefits that's going to be hard to retract and to pull back because it is such a, an important um, health benefit for some employees and certainly for some for employers as well. So this, it just seems like this one, maybe there, there may be some type of flexibility going forward, but we'll have to see what they end up doing with this. But um, right. What about wellness programs? Did the DOL uh, address anything? This has obviously been an evolving topic as well, but did they address anything on wellness programs? Yeah, wellness programs are, can be very complicated. And we know um, from recent news uh, that we've received that the EEOC is probably going to be publishing some new rules here. But the concern um, in the COVID environment has been with wellness programs that have some type of standard that employees have to meet to get a reward. Easiest example would be a smoker surcharge. You know, if I'm a smoker, I have to pay more for my premium. Um, you can do that as an employer, but the uh, HIPAA rules come in and say you have to allow for a reasonable alternative standard. In the smoker surcharge context, that would be a smoking cessation program. If I attend the smoking cessation program, I'm treated as if I'm a non-smoker and I get the reward. I don't have to pay that smoker surcharge. Uh, but in this environment, Going to a smoking cessation program, if that were in a brick and mortar type of building, 
my access to get around is now more limited. It's a lot harder to meet many of these uh, reasonable alternative standards. It may even be hard to prove the actual standard. And so the new guidance here just basically says uh, it's okay for employers to completely waive that original standard or the reasonable alternative standard. That will cost the employer a little bit more. They're basically saying we're just going to pay the surcharge on behalf of employees. Um, but administratively, with all the HR and benefits teams are dealing with in this environment, this may be welcome news to just say, you know what, we'll just forget about the uh, standard and meeting that reasonable alternative standard. We'll give everybody the reward for this year and, and we'll move on to next year um, and see how it goes. Well, you know, it's nice when they, when they try to provide flexibility when it's needed. That's a welcome development. But let's move on now to summer camps. It is the season. Uh, We are in July, so it's definitely the season for summer camps. And there was some recent guidance related to the FFCRA leave and summer camps. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the FFCRA, as we know now, provides up to 80 hours of emergency paid sick leave and up to 12 weeks of expanded FMLA, 10 of which could be paid if an employee is unable to work or telework because they have this need to care for their child because the child's place of care is closed due to COVID. And so um, the question is really, does a summer camp count as a place of care when you're talking about um, how to care for the child? This would include summer camps, summer enrichment programs, and other summer programs. And the bulletin really that was put out by the DOL on this focuses, you know, look at the evidence of the employee's intent to use the camper program for this purpose. That has to be considered. And so for for employees that maybe have enrollment records, they already enrolled before the pandemic hit, maybe they paid a down payment, they have evidence of that. It's going to be pretty clear that they have this intent to use the summer camps as a place of care now that they're canceled. Um, they're unable to do that. And so that would be a closure of a place of care. Therefore, the employee could qualify for this FFCRA leave. But what about where that's not the case? There was no obvious actual advance enrollment. The bulletin provides some helpful guidance here, just saying, look, we'll look at the evidence. Um, it has to appear that the, you know, it's more likely than not that the employee would have enrolled their child. So you look at other steps that were taken by the employee that might indicate that intent to enroll. The Bulletin specifically lists things like paying a deposit. You mentioned that one. Prior attendance in the camper program, if you had your kid in the program last year and they are still able to attend this year, that would be evidence. Submitting an application to enroll. Evidence that the child is on a wait list, um, perhaps pending reopening of the summer camp. That would be a sufficient evidence to show this intent to enroll. That could be really helpful for somebody who maybe has had to relocate or move cities they weren't able to actually enroll yet, they can at least show this wait list. And then it also talks about the age of the children. If it's a camper program that's available, you know, for 12-year-olds and your child is 13 years old, obviously you're not going to be able to use the summer camp as a reason to take this leave. But it just reminds employers to look at those things. Interestingly, the, the bulletin says that a mere statement of intent is likely not enough. And that's a little bit surprising and, and interesting in it by itself because the, the IRS and the DOL both in lots of other situations related to benefits allow the employer to rely on an employee's attestations. Right. Anything about tax-dependent status, dependent status for purposes of eligibility, like this is my son or daughter, this is my wife, this is my domestic partner, if they're allowing domestic partner coverage. Most employers and the IRS and the DOL are okay with 
the employee just attesting to it, but that's not the case here. The, the deal is saying they need a bit more evidence. So it may be in the form of uh, some attempts at getting them enrolled if you haven't done it previously um, and showing that those attempts have been made, I would imagine, and, and on multiple occasions, if you can show that there was a real diligence effort on your part, I would, I would wonder if that would suffice. But I, I, mm -hmm. I can assure you that my girls did not, uh, their camp in California was closed this summer. However, they're 17, so I don't think that would have passed muster anyway. So there's obviously <laughs> limitations with regard to that too. Um, so yeah. that it's helpful that they are being flexible. It would be nice to have even further guidance, um, you know, on those boundaries of, of what it would take. But do you think this is just too late in the game? I mean, here we are already almost mid-July. Yeah, I mean, this was released on June 26, but lots of employers and employees probably had to make decisions before that on summer camp. So hopefully the guidance helps confirm some of the decisions that maybe they made. Um, and it obviously should help with employers that are still struggling on this issue, whether to grant FFCRA leave to employees in these situations. Um, but it's, yeah, something to look at if you made a decision that maybe doesn't fit in here, might be an opportunity to go back and, and talk to the employee and, and work it out in some way. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, is with respect to the tax credits. So we're talking about granting the leave. On the backside, the employer can claim FFCRA tax credits to pay for the leave that's been paid out. Um, remember that the IRS will only grant tax credits for FFCRA allowed and required leave. So if the employer goes further and allows the leave, but it wouldn't otherwise meet the FFCRA standards, then it would have to justify that to the IRS in order to claim the tax credits. And if the IRS disagrees that the leave should have been granted, they may disallow the tax credits. We see some of the crossover with the IRS and DOL when it comes to these COVID-19 pandemic type laws and regulation, and, and it's important for employers to be aware of both the DOL guidance and how that impacts the IRS side with the tax credits. Right, yes, and they have some skin in the game in making sure that it's done correctly. Um, right. So really a lot of areas here. What I know that we were going to discuss also some state developments related to COVID-19 and personal travel, so, so let's quickly go through that. Yeah, this is an interesting development in New York. Uh, we're monitoring this to see if other states will follow suit. But at the end of June, the governor uh, Cuomo there issued an executive order which imposed a two-week quarantine on travelers arriving in New York from other states with high COVID-19 positive test rates. Um, there are some specifics there on which states, you know, the, the standards they meet to be considered uh, high-risk states or hotspots. Uh, but the, that executive order did not address whether employees who voluntarily travel to such high-risk states are eligible for the state COVID-19 paid sick leave expansion upon return. Um, so that would normally be available to employees subject to a mandatory or a precautionary COVID-19 quarantine order. But the uh, governor added a new executive order that modified the original order saying that if you've gone out to this hot spots, which include Florida, the Carolinas, Utah, which is where I am now, Arizona, and Texas, where you are, Suzanne. Right. Uh, those are the hot spots. And if you're coming back from those hot spots, this new executive order basically says you cannot qualify for this COVID-19 leave expansion. So um, it doesn't apply if it's uh, work-related travel or at the direction of the employer. So that's an important distinction. But it just gets to this idea of people moving a little bit more freely now with maybe some relaxed um, rules on stay-at-home orders. Um, but for New York employers, um, they need to be aware of that. And then we'll see what other states might follow suit here. Not every state obviously has the 
protections for COVID-19 or, or other paid sick and family and medical leave laws like New York does. Other states may follow suit here on imposing quarantines for people traveling back from hotspots, and that may impact some of the state leave benefits or even the city and local leave benefits that are out there. So we'll just have to wait and see on this one. Right. And, and you mentioned New York employers, which brings up an interesting question is whether this applies to where the, the employer is located or whether the employee resides, if they are uh, working remotely or whether they're going into an office in New York and reside out of the state even. So what can you clarify who it applies to? Yeah, that's a great question. And we haven't seen a ton of uh, clarification on this. Normally, the New York law applies based on your work location. So um, for anybody who you know travels in from out of state to Manhattan or anywhere else in New York, they would have protections. If they were uh, working remotely for a company that outside of New York, but were working in New York, they would actually be entitled to that. Uh, but we don't know now that if you used to be working in Manhattan and now you're at your home office in New Jersey or in Connecticut or Pennsylvania, wherever that is, um, you, it's not clear whether you're still entitled to those New York protections. So that's another evolving issue. I think most people thought this would be very temporary, but it seems the longer we go, the bigger this issue becomes as uh, people kind of switch their mode to maybe more more permanent or more regular work from home arrangements. Right. Great, great information, Chase. And uh, so that is that is it for today. Next time we will address some of the new healthcare sharing ministries. Um, those seem to be on the rise and we want to address some of the legal issues associated with that. But for now, as we like to say, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining. <laughs>